All right, welcome back. We have a unusual case today. I want to bring y'all uh, in on something that kind of a thing where it's a small world sometimes, depending on the things that you're doing and, and uh, cases you're investigating. And uh, today, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, something that happened a very long time ago before either one of us were doing anything in life, I guess. Um, but in 1970. Two, sorry, 74, uh, a gentleman by the name of David Roberts. Sorry, I'm trying to keep my notes together um, <laughs> doing this. Uh, went on a rampage in Indiana. He went and bought four tires for his car. Didn't want to pay for them. Uh, they drove off on the brand new uh, tires and the tire manager filed a complaint against him with the police department okay. and um yeah so uh mr roberts didn't like that so he shows up at the guy's house with four cans of gasoline and sets the house on fire killing the man's wife the man himself and their six-month-old child wow yeah so uh yeah all right well that sounds like an interesting case i can't wait to dive into this one yeah, uh, yeah. For, for all of our returning listeners thank you for coming back and we're excited to share this new episode with you guys and for those that are just joining us welcome yeah <laughs> we can't have none of that commentary <laughs> oh, welcome back and we are just happy to have you guys and Got doors opening in the background. And well, let's just roll right into it. So, in 1974, a gentleman by the name of uh, David Roberts goes to Indianapolis. He had been living in the Northwest section near uh, Chicago mm. around uh, Gary, Indiana. And uh, he needed tires for his car, pulls into a car uh, tire place. Uh, they put four tires on his car. He drove off, said he wasn't going to pay for it. The tire manager filed a complaint against him. Uh, Mr. Roberts didn't like that, so somehow he found out where the manager lived took four cans of gasoline to his house, set the house on fire, killed the manager, his wife, and uh, their uh, child, about a year old child. Mm. Uh, from that point, he ran off. And um, after he was indicted, he moved away. And uh, once he was picked up, a judge listed on the on the paperwork as a sympathetic judge, let him have bail for $10,000. Well, we know cash or surety, you only need a thousand in cash. Yep. $10,000 bail. And uh, he went back to uh, Indianapolis where he found a young lady and he raped her twice, did not kill her, put her in the trunk of the car, but took her six month old baby out and left him in the woods to die of exposure in March of 74. 
So now he's indicted on uh, four counts of homicide plus the rape charges. Girl survived um, the attack. And uh, he was armed with a pistol where he was picked up on new felony charges. And this time they wouldn't give him any bail, obviously. Well, hopefully. I mean, the first one was extremely questionable and negligent, it almost seems like. Good grief. Yeah. But it was the middle 70s, so laws were different, people were different, times were different. He goes off to jail, no bail this time, no bond, but he faked sickness in jail, didn't want to stay there. Two guys take him, two uh, detention officers take him to the uh, hospital, which was outside the jail mm-hmm. at the time. He somehow gets a gun away from one of them. Hog ties both of those guys up, throws them in the back of their uh, transport van, doesn't kill them for some reason, and he's gone again. Hmm. He, in 1986, uh, when he escaped, this time they issued the federal warrants for him, which would be a nationwide manhunt. And in 1987, uh, he was nowhere to be found. They couldn't find him anywhere. He had disappeared into the night, and that was the end of that. Um, and also in 1987, in April 1987, uh, the fugitive warrants section had put him on their uh, top 10 most wanted fugitives list. Mm. So he, he's being sought after and he's still, they, they, they can't find him anywhere. And in 1987, still not really up on internet usage to the point that we are today and being able to track people, especially if they don't use credit cards. Uh, he, stayed, he stayed gone for a little while. In February 1988, a program called America's Most Wanted came on the air and their very first uh, profile on America's Most Wanted was David Robinson from Indiana. And uh, he was profiled. The whole uh, case was brought on and at least 75 callers had called to identify uh, this guy as being uh, under the assumed name of Robert Lord. And he was director of a shelter for the homeless Staten Island, New York. So agents arrested uh, Roberts on the job and he'd been earning $18,000 a year, they said, as a homeless shelter administrator. And he was also uh, notorious for being the very first captured on America's Most Wanted. So not only was the first profiled case on America's Most Wanted, he was the first uh, capture. Yeah. Most wanted based on the callers that called in, 75 callers at the time. Yeah. So, first success story of America's Most Wanted. And also, when you look at it, it's probably the first use of electronic media to get the message out. America's Most Wanted is groundbreaking. Yeah. Finding fugitives and getting the word out to all the four corners of the world to find these guys. So, uh, good job on that, and they put him in jail where he remains today. Now, 
part of the small world thing comes into play. I'm working in Indiana and uh, managing the property evidence room in Indianapolis. And I run across this request. It's a request for public access. Ah. Copy of it. From a person by the name of David Roberts. Okay. David Roberts was writing me as the property room supervisor at the time, requesting any and all property in relation, past and present, stemming from the murder, kidnapping, rape case, arrest of David Roberts in November 1974. He wrote me a letter saying that he'd like to be able to give his gun that he used in the commission of the felony to his son, hand it down to him. Yikes. I know. Normally, I get a letter like this, and I'm like, I have to research it and go through all the steps and um, take it to the chief. Somebody higher than me is going to sign off on this. I'm not signing off on it. But when I looked this up, and the first thing that came up in the computer was this extremely violent homicide with extremely uh, horrible consequences, this was too good to be true. I knew the answer was going to be no. <laughs> well yeah uh some states have laws that say weapons used in the commission of a homicide some of them go as far as other areas some don't have any requirements at all but in this state any weapon used in the commission of a homicide is never ever destroyed or released it is kept forever and there are some really old guns in that, in that law. oh i bet i bet man that's that's pretty interesting. Yeah, pretty crazy how it all shakes out. So I uh, made an appointment to see the chief and asked him to bring my direct supervisor, who's an assistant chief, uh, into the appointment. And I told him the story just like it happened. And of course, in the, you know, in the beginning of it, they're like, what does this have to do with anything? And then they realized, no, wait a minute. There could be something here because this guy doesn't usually bring up something that's not unusual. You know? So, yeah, going back to the cases that I like to work that are unusual, here I am. Yeah. <laughs> I read this stuff and they flipped out. They were just, they couldn't believe it. They were kind of laughing. They were like, what is this guy not? I'm like, he is a prisoner. And uh, the gall. You know, to ask for something like that. You want the gun back that all these horrific crimes were used to commit with? And, and you want to give that to your kid? I mean, what in the world? So anyway, mm. uh, long story short on that, we wound up not complying with the request from this gentleman that uh, for obvious reasons and for state law reasons, he wasn't going to get the gun back. Right. And as of today, he is still in the uh, state prison for those crimes. He uh, received four life terms, uh, not concurrently, but consecutively. So if he can live out the first one, he has to serve the second. <laughs> and then the third and then the fourth. So not much of a chance. Not much of a chance at all. But it's just one of those things where sometimes it's a small world. You never know how things intertwine like that and how the connection would be made. I was surprised when I saw it myself. Yeah. Well, 
so you know talk about your your daily activity as an evidence because well evidence supervisor one of those things people always want their stuff back yeah when they get cleared of something or they think they're cleared or they've served their time they think they get their stuff back and it depends on the case and it depends on the charges sometimes that happens sometimes it doesn't Mm -hmm. this has never happened and actually after the dust settled so to speak i pulled the case number up and in a creepy kind of moment went looked at the actual gun that this actually happened with and uh was quite quite moved by it i couldn't touch it couldn't bring myself to touch it but certainly opened the box and looked at it and to make sure it was still there i mean people are people and temptation gets more than one person in trouble yep and i just wanted to make sure that over the years that the gun didn't somehow disappear and um, mm-hmm. it was fascinating to do that with but that's one of the jobs of the property supervisor besides counting up you know forfeiture money and money seized during the commission of a felony or usually a drug deal or something right and then every monday or tuesday a designated week a deposit was made at the bank across the street to go from the police department to the bank chain of custody securing the mm-hmm. the money as it was and to make sure that uh, the integrity is still in place for all those things so all the things that you would think of where the logistics behind an arrest, seizure of money, seizure of property, um, making sure that you know, we have these huge dryers that look like a phone booth. And I don't know if anybody listening even knows what a phone booth is anymore. It used to be like a four-foot square. Maybe Very cramped. <laughs> yeah, but cramped. Had a telephone in it. You dropped it money in it to, to call somebody we have these air dryers that are used to dry items of either paper or clothing or material or whatever that had been involved in a crime that needed to dry the most likely thing is clothes that have blood splattered on them you can't just wad them up throw them in a bag and put them in evidence you have to dry it out collect the evidence and the drying process is a specific machine that has a catch in the bottom of it to catch material and evidence that would drop during the course of drying. Once it dried, did it stick to the clothing or did it fall in through? And that's important because you may recover DNA evidence of some sort that you wouldn't normally know might be on the clothing. So anything that falls to that catch down below and it kind of works like flypaper. Anything that sticks to it stays to it, but doesn't destroy it. You catalog all that evidence, and that may be the one piece that ties somebody to a crime. Right. So, uh, to make sure those things are working right, filters have to be changed routinely for every single case because you don't want to cross contaminate any DNA that may have come off clothing, circulated through the thing, and then deposit it onto somebody else's case. Right. So let's say hair. Somehow hair gets loose. You don't have those filters changed. The next time somebody puts materials in there to dry, that hair shows up on one. Now somebody whose DNA profile is on that hair gets blamed for a crime they weren't even anywhere near. Right. So yep. um, there are key pieces of 
duties for the supervisor that go beyond standing at the window and somebody brings in a gun and here's some dope and this and that. Here's the case. Uh, another part of it is we talked about forfeiture money, we talked about weapons, and we talked about the drying of evidence. And then there's the uh, equipment that we use to seal evidence with. Mm-hmm. Let's say you've got a pound of marijuana, but we're not going to take it, duct tape a uh, evidence tag on it, and throw it in the closet. Right. And integrity still has to be a play. Mm-hmm. So it goes into a bigger bag that can contain it. And there were times when um, officers that don't have the proper leadership or direction, when they uh, seize evidence, they don't package it correctly. And property evidence managers, as well as employees, are there to instruct them how to preserve that evidence so they don't lose their case down the road. If you take live plants, grow houses, at one time, our big thing, you don't hear much about them because of all the other things that take over now, oxy, heroin, all these other things, fentanyl. But in a day when row houses were really important, people were seizing, were seizing uh, plants, all kinds of different size plants, and throwing them in an evidence bag, whatever they had at the time, and bringing them in property evidence. If you don't pay attention on more than one occasion, it's been found that live plants put into a plastic bag and then sealed up, the moisture will rot the plant. And next thing you know, you have a bag full of liquid. Yeah. A really smelly bag full of liquid. Right. I've had more than uh, one case that we had to throw out because the evidence just isn't there anymore. It disintegrated in the bag. Mm. I had a technician one time complain, why do these things always leak down my arm? Well, let's see what you got. Oh, and for some reason, uh, the instruction just wasn't there. And people need to know that until that stuff is dried out, it has to go into a paper bag so that it can dry out. Or it can go in a locker and dry out. I mean, it has to be processed correctly based on your policies and procedures so that you don't have a bag full of liquid. So, right found uh, quite a bit of that. So uh, the proper packaging of evidence, not only for the case, but to make sure it lasts long enough to make it to trial, should it go to trial. And then one of the last things that are uh, a big responsibility of that is the destruction of evidence once the court deems that it is no longer of use. Right. You can't just throw it in the trash can and send it out the back door. There's a uh, contract usually with a, um, they call it the burn plant, but it's a contract with a company that uh, has the right type of furnaces, that has the right type of licenses, and you literally incinerate the evidence. It can melt guns, it can melt, obviously, burn dope, uh, papers, uh, all kinds of things. And it has certain licenses, there are certain procedures escorted by officials and witnessed by a bunch of people to make sure nothing happens to it. So those are pretty much the big five of things that property evidence management has to do to ensure that the stability and the integrity of the property evidence department is still there for all the cases. Oh yeah. I've had to, (laughs) I've had to seal some stuff before. Uh, There's like cases that I've run where 
uh, somebody assault somebody with something. So, like, I've had to seize a TV remote because somebody threw a TV remote and hit somebody with it. And they were like, well, we got to seize it and test it for DNA and evidence, and then we'll do with it as we will. And uh, we, the guy that owned the remote, he didn't want it back because he was like, I don't care anymore. Yeah. So then we were like, well, we got to destroy it. So we just destroyed it, and that was it. Well, it's, it's pretty crazy the kind of stuff that you do see. Which, you know, also you have to make sure that your equipment that you have can protect that integrity on that evidence. One of the things that um, I did, and I did this because when I got the uh, assignment to evaluate and audit the department's evidentiary procedures, one of the things I want to know is where are you losing your cases? Right. What problems are you having in court? What are you getting tossed for challenges? And for a long time, they had people that would say, that place is crooked. These dudes are stealing dope. Every time we go to uh, file a case and uh, send over our evidence for discovery, um, the bag's open. Somebody's been in the bag, so now the evidence is compromised. And I'm like, good grief, man. This is a rough one because, you know, you kind of have to tread lightly until you figure out what your footing is and where you're going with it. Yeah. So the first thing I looked at was the most, in my mind, logical place for failure. And that was, let's look at the equipment that we're using. What kind of bags are we using? Well, they're a heavy 14 mil bag. And uh, I'm like, okay, uh, that seems strong enough. All the ends seem to be secure. They're double sealed. And uh, the top where you um, seal it once you put the evidence down in it. What you know? How are we doing that? Oh, we have a, a heat press that yeah. uh, seals it up when you press it down. I'm like, okay, let's go try it. You know, we tried it. Uh, it has a dial on it to kind of adjust it based on the bag because if you turn it too hot, you could seal right through the bag, and next thing you know, you compromise that bag. It won't stay. Yep, won't stay done that before. <laughs> so um heat seal machine and then i looked at the bags that we're using and the specific mill which is how thick the plastic is on it and i looked at the machine and it says a different mill even on the gauge it doesn't go as high as the plastic we were seeing so the, at the time they were sealing bags with a heat machine that wouldn't get hot enough to seal it correctly plus it would only seal like i said a thin line like if you had something you overdid, like you take a Ziploc baggie in there and try to seal it, it's going to cut right through it. Yeah. So we had a machine that was only good up to a certain mill and wouldn't seal the thickness of bags that we had, and therefore they were coming undone when they were on their way to court. No wonder their cases were getting thrown out. So the, the uh, accusation that the cops are dirty and that they were taking the dough from it you know, it didn't make sense when they're saying, all right, we're looking at three pencils in a bag that we're using for a different case. And the bag's not sealed anymore? Well, what cop wants to steal a pencil, you know? It just didn't make sense. So I looked at the equipment, and um, we bought the correct heat sealing equipment. And instead of having a singular 
punchline, it had a dual um, channel that would seal. So if one line did compromise, the other one would still maintain integrity. But, it, you know, as long as it was the right mill of bag, the thickness of the bag for the machine, you didn't have to worry about that anymore anyway. So immediately, we're in good shape again. And... Uh, Turned out really well, but that was, you know, maintaining the equipment is a huge thing because now you're, uh, you're testing equipment, you're securing and preserving equipment. If it's not working right, you jeopardize the value of the evidence. Oh, yeah. So, and the value of the evidence is important because it can be used, obviously, to prove things, but also disprove things. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a huge role being the evidence custodian or the evidence supervisor. So that's, that's important. Um, did, did your boy, Mr. Roberts, uh, did he, did he send like a rebuttal or anything or did he just accept it? I think he just accepted it. The rebuttal that comes from our legal department, uh, pretty much lays it out in a outline type form. Thank you for, you know, contacting us and appreciate your forthcoming. Uh, however, due to state law and it lists the state law yeah. due to this, we can't do that. So it outlines it pretty well. There's no, there's no uh, recourse for anything going forward. I mean, this thing's so absurd. It was just a request by him. It wasn't even done by his attorney. So it's not like it was even going to go through a formal process. Yeah, the attorney probably would have just been laughed at him and just been like, no, I'm not. Yeah, he probably, and he probably told him, said, look, you can file it if you want to. I'm not signing my name to it because they're just not going to do it. Right. And he's probably thinking, well, it doesn't hurt to try. Yeah. Yeah. What's the worst they can say? No, exactly. So, yeah. And they got the worst. Well, that's pretty cool. It's, it's cool that you have a connection to such a high profile case and uh, man, that's, that's why. Well, I hope you guys like this one. Um, Like I said, it's an unusual case and it's one of those things where you don't ever know exactly how things will connect and this whole uh, circle of law enforcement prosecution and cases and how they come into play uh, it's just one of those odd ones that just kind of struck me and uh, immediately i wanted the chief to know and you know, i was like you know it's pretty cool so <laughs> hopefully you liked it and uh if we have another one like that again we'll be sure to bring it up yeah i mean it's you just never know what you're going to work on you never know what kind of case you're going to pick up that day or what kind of work you're going to do for a case that has already happened Mm -hmm. uh it's it really is just a mystery you just can't predict that stuff so that's cool well thanks for sharing that um you know i've i've had some experience with evidence too and it it was uh it's been crazy sometimes but uh yeah, de- definitely glad you guys joined us for this one. And if you have any any comments or any kind of questions or anything, we have our email. We have Facebook, Instagram. You can send us a message through there or you can uh, comment on, on our post or whatever. Just uh, if you have something, just reach out. Let us know. Yep, absolutely. Welcome all that join us. And uh, you're more than welcome to comment anytime. Happy yeah. to hear from you. For sure. All right. Well, until next time. All right. We'll see you, man.